prayer for each of us, Father. As you examine us here, is, is that where we are? That we give you our entire heart and our entire soul. Help that to be the case for each of us, I pray, Lord. As you're being seated, I'm going to ask that the children through grade four go. Let's, let's pray for them as they go, shall we? Lord, I do that. I pray for these children as they leave for those who have prepared lessons for them, I pray for their parents, Lord, for the grandparents of each of them, for the legacy that you call for us to leave for the children who are coming behind us, for those teachers, Lord, those hands of people that you've called into that area who faithfully give of their time to help parents instruct their kids in the way of the Lord. Pray, Father, that these children would learn about you in ways that are foundational to the rest of their lives. Those of us who've had the privilege of growing up in the church know what it's like to have foundation built on you. So we pray for them, Lord, for the world that they are growing up into and for the role that you long to have in each of their lives. Now, as we open your word, Lord, first we praise you and we thank you that you've given us your word, that your word is life, it's truth. It's given to us so that we can know you, not just know about you, but know you. And in so knowing, we can see who you are calling us to be and who you are empowering us to be. So as we open this book, Lord, we pray that you will allow us to take the opportunity to meet with you and to become your people, even more so than we were when we came in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians and we're going to be in chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. And this is the last in our series of looking at who is this man. And you'll remember that was our Easter theme, and we've been looking at that several different uh, times in, over, the, over the last few weeks and looking at who is this man, Jesus, and and. We've considered the fact that he was, he was a man who walked on earth and who was crucified and died. And that's very, very important because we all need a Savior. Each one of us have fallen away from God's best, and we need a Savior. And in order for Jesus to be a Savior, he had to be fully God. He needed to be fully God in order to save us because only God can, can save us. Only God can forgive and we needed him to, or he needed to be fully human because we needed a kinsman redeemer. So we needed a man to represent and take our sin upon him and take that sin to the cross and die and, and raise again to gain victory over the death 
and then go to heaven and come back again one day. We don't know when. We know it's not May 21st, 2011. (laughs) But we don't know when. Mm -hmm. But we know the truth that he's coming. And we know the truth that he's the Savior. We know the truth that he's come to save us from our sins. And we need to be as zealous telling people about that as that group was zealous about telling people what they thought was true because what we have we know is true. Amen? Amen. And I pray that you've had opportunities to talk to people because of what has happened. I know that the door was opened for me in several places. People who wouldn't normally talk to me about things came up to me and asked about it because it started to stir some worry in some people, didn't it? So, who is this man? Well, he's a man who walked on earth He's a man who's in heaven, yes, and who's coming again one day, but he's also here so that we can have power in weakness, and that's what we're going to look at today in this passage that we're at. We're going to be looking at at 2 Corinthians, a letter written by Paul, and verses 7 through 10. Could I just read those, please? 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. To keep me from becoming conceited, Paul says, because of these surpassingly great revelations... There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's an incredible couple of verses here, isn't it? I pray that as we leave here today, we'll be able to have some new strength and some new understanding of what this means. The answer to our weakness is the power of Christ. That's our big idea for today. Before we take a look at these few verses, we need to see what they are in context because we're kind of picking up a letter and just grabbing a few verses out of the middle, and that becomes really hard if we don't take a look at the total context of what this is all about. 2 Corinthians, of course, is a letter written to the church in Corinth by Paul. And we call it 2 Corinthians, but it's at least the fourth letter that we know of. Now, two of them we don't have. We have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is what we've called them, but 1 Corinthians tells us that there was a letter that was sent to to Corinth prior to that one, and 2 Corinthians tells us there was a letter that was sent in between. So we know that there were at least four letters. Now, that shouldn't concern us that we don't have all the letters, because if we needed to have those other two letters, you know what? God would have preserved them, and they would have been given to us, and we would use those to know him more. As it is, what we have is sufficient, and we trust him for that. But the big deal about that is that it reveals that a couple of things. One, that Paul wrote a lot, and we know that. We have several of his letters in Scripture, but there were obviously a lot more letters that he wrote as he traveled around as a missionary and wrote letters of encouragement to each of the churches that he formed and each one that he founded. But this church in Corinth seemed to be a little special to Paul. 
In Acts, we're told that he actually spent a year and a half there. It's where he connected with Priscilla and Aquila. He spent a year and a half there, and he was a tent maker. And Corinth was a perfect place for him to carry on his trade and make the money that he needed to make to support his ministry. Because, you see, Corinth was this incredible city. It was a, it was a huge city. Actually, it had the largest marketplace in the world at that time, the biggest mall, uh, Mall of Europe. I don't know what they called it, but, you know, it was there in Corinth. Because Corinth was located on an isthmus, a little land mass, about two miles wide, and it became the shortcut to get through with uh, trade. There's actually a canal there now. And so as, as we look at Corinth, it became a place where everybody wanted to go, and there were, there were people from all over who went. The city had been destroyed and rebuilt in 45 B.C., and this is being written about 55 A.D. So the city's about 100 years old, but it's big. And it's a place where people could go. It was a place of affluence, but it was also a place of great, great poverty. But as a place of affluence and as a place where people could go and succeed in business and, and could be very, very, very well known for, for who they were, it became a place where people got very comfortable. Material things were readily available to them, and they were able to have a very, very comfortable lifestyle. And that's the city of Corinth that Paul went to. And it's the city of Corinth that Paul wrote to. At this particular point in time in history, there were people who would make their living by going around, and, and they were great orators, okay? They would, they would speak, and, and, and they would perfect a message, and they would, they would use that message, and, and they would speak it in public squares, and then people would become enamored by the message and the delivery of the message, more so than the message itself. And as such, that's how people would would uh, earn their living is by being great orators of a message. And that's what was happening here, amongst other things. As Paul had established the church and spent about a year and a half, there were people who came to know Christ. And they were pretty well established after a year and a half. But as Paul left, people came in and began to distort the message, just a little, just a little. And as that message became a little distorted, Pretty soon, people got pulled away from Paul and his message and the true gospel that he had presented. And these other, these other speakers took the same message Paul had, but twisted it a little bit and boasted about themselves, about how good they were. Because, you see, the, the, the better the story the orator had about himself, the better his story would be perceived. So it was very important for these people to boast about themselves how good they were, and, and what their past was, and where their story came from. And that became what was really popular. So that the most, the, the, the most um, apparently beautiful speakers were the ones who were adhered to. Well, as we, as we pick this up in Corinthians, and, and we look at our verses here, it says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. See, Paul is saying something different. While these other speakers are boasting about all the great things that they have, Paul is boasting about his weaknesses. So that's where we're picking this up, and that's where that all belongs in context. Does that help you a little bit? All right. So now, here we are, and we're looking at the answer to our weakness is the power of Christ. First point, the thorn is real. The thorn is real. That's what we can see. 
he says, there, there was given me a thorn. And he says that thorn was given to torment me. Paul was given a thorn that tormented him. It's real. The word for, for torment here actually means like to slap around. To King James uh, translates it, buffet. You know, buffet you. It's, it's this idea that, you know, it's the same word that's used when Jesus was getting beat in the face uh, before his crucifixion. It's that idea that this thorn that Paul had been given made him feel like he was being buffeted around, like he was being slapped around in the head. And, and the way that it's presented, it's that it was continual. It was a continual torment that came to him from this thorn that he had. And, boy, there's been volumes written about what is this thorn and what was it in Paul's life. And depending on how uh, one, of the, one of the authors said, depending on what your thorn is, that's what you think his thorn was. And it's really easy to portray someone else as having the same problem as us. But the truth is we don't know what this thorn was for Paul. We're uncertain. It's never really told us what that thorn is. And that's because the point of the passage that we're looking at today is not what is the thorn. The point of the passage is, how will I respond to the thorn? How will I respond to that thorn in my life that torments me? And that's the point. And so if we needed to know what that thorn was, God would have told us. We don't need to know. That's okay. And so we look at it. And we understand that this thorn is real. And it torments us. Now, not all of our thorns are obvious, are they? Sometimes they are. Sometimes the things that come from the outside uh, and, and affect us and, and torment us, they can be pretty obvious. But sometimes the things that torment us are just the surface of something much deeper that's tormenting us. And the real thorn may be harder to find. The word for thorn here is actually better translated as stake. And it's, a, it's like this idea that it would impale you and just be constant over and over. Peter says we shouldn't be surprised at that. We shouldn't be surprised at the painful trials we're suffering as though something strange were happening to us. You understand that. Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. It's for sure that we will. We live in a fallen world. Consequences of sin are all around us. Six billion people, all choosing to sin. And there's consequences from those. And they spread out far and wide, and they affect each one of us. And so they bring thorns. So, a couple of questions. What is the thorn that's been given to me at this moment? And how is it tormenting me? And does it overwhelm me? Now, the thing to remember about Paul is he was an ordinary man. Paul was just an ordinary man, just like the rest of us. But he had a radical conversion. Paul had a radical conversion. See, he just didn't uh, secure eternity, okay, which sometimes I think the way we present the gospel, it's like... We want to secure eternity for ourselves. But Paul was radically converted. There was a major change in his life. 
a complete 180, a turn from who he was into, into who he was going to be by the power of Christ flowing through him. So if he was an ordinary man and, and we're ordinary, we can expect to experience the same things as him. The second point is that the source and the purpose are surprising. When we think about thorns and we think about where they come from and what their purpose is, a lot of times we spend a lot of time thinking about that. Why, why did God allow this in my life? What, what is bringing this? How is this happening and why does this happen to me? And it's so easy to get focused on those things. But it's interesting here that, that Paul says something that's fascinating to me. And as I've been considering this in my life this week, to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited, the purpose of the thorn was to prevent pride from coming into Paul's life. Because he was an ordinary man, he was, but he was radically converted. And he was an apostle, and as an apostle, he was given incredible power by God flowing through him. He healed sick. He did miracles. He had revelations that, that were some that nobody else had had, special things that Jesus had revealed to him. It would have been very easy for him to get very proud about the things that, that God was doing through him. But the thorn came to prevent him from getting proud. And that's important. And it was given to him a messenger of Satan. The implication here is that God brought this into Paul's life. God brought this thorn into Paul's life. A messenger of Satan used by God to torment Paul to keep him from becoming conceited. Does that make you a little uncomfortable? Now, I want to be careful here because this isn't a, a teaching that's normative. In other words, we're not saying here that, that Paul's saying that every single thing that comes into your life that's suffering and torment has been brought there by God. That's not what he's teaching, but he is teaching that there are times that that's the situation that God brings things into your life to keep you from becoming conceited and prideful. I don't need help being prideful. I need help not being prideful. Would you agree with that for you? I mean, not for me, but for you. <laughs> you can agree with it for me, too. Because it's true, isn't it? It's been interesting for me as I've stopped to really consider this this week and realize that, do you know that self-sufficiency is pride? Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I can't do anything apart from Christ. And once, once Jesus comes into my life and rescues me and, and radically converts me, as I allow that in my life, you see, there's no place for pride. There's no place for self-sufficiency. I realize, what did we sing? Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, see, it's all him, every beat of my heart, everything. I've got nothing. 
I have nothing and I, I wear it all too well. But that's the truth, isn't it, for each of us? And oh boy, we try so hard to cover that up and to conceal that. The purpose in this case. Psalm 139, David says, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. There's a little line in that psalm that says, you are familiar with all my ways. Do you know that God is familiar with all your ways? You know? The way you react when that guy cuts you off in traffic. The way you respond when somebody says something to you. The way you talk to your kids. The way you talk to your wife. All your ways God is familiar with. And each one of those, as we, as we take those, he longs for us to be able to have those be lined up with his ways. And the way he does that is by his power flowing through us. Hebrews 12 says we shouldn't be surprised at the discipline that comes to us. That as, as, as God disciplines us, he's refining us. Now, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, it says. That same root word for discipline is the same root word as for disciple. And it's that idea that, that God is growing me more and more into him, his image and into his likeness. So the answer to our weakness is the power of Christ applied to those weaknesses. Thorns are real. They are. We know that. And to think that God may be bringing them into our lives to keep us from becoming conceited can be hard. The story is told of a man he was so humble. Oh, he was an incredibly humble man. And everybody noticed. It, it was so obvious. He was so completely humble. And pretty soon the whole church recognized it. And so they had a special dinner. And they awarded him a pin, a golden H. The minute he put it on, he became disqualified to wear it. <laughs> right? Humility escapes us. We're to be clothed with humility. Clothed with humility. And the reason is, and, and I believe that the reason that God is so excited about helping us to, be, to, to keep us from becoming conceited is because God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Those who are proud, those who are self-sufficient, those who think they can do it on their own, those who apply their own, their own strength to a situation... God has to come in opposition to them. He doesn't long to do that with his children. He'd rather keep us from becoming conceited than to have to oppose us when we are conceited. So is it possible, the questions here, is it possible that the sovereign hand of God is visible in, some of the, in the afflictions that I face? Is it possible that those thorns that I'm bearing are actually the hand of God? And can I see his purpose in them, and what do they reveal in me? The question to ask ourselves, as these thorns come in our lives, as we're in the middle of this torment, can I see the hand of God in that? 
Where can I see the hand of God in that? And is there something in me that needs to change? And is that why it's been brought into my life? So, the next point, the answer is unexpected. Paul says that this, this thorn that was given to him, this messenger of Satan, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Paul was very intentional. He was so extremely intentional about why he was here and what he was doing. He knew that he was the apostle of the Gentiles, and he took that very seriously. He had a passion. He was, he was driven. When I, read, when I read about his life, and I, I think, oh, man. I mean, this guy was just constant, on the move. When you read in chapter 11 all of the sufferings that he had, the beatings that he had, all of the things that he took, all of the things that were, were said against him and about him, and all of the beatings that he had and everything else, and he never lost sight of the mission that God had him on. And he was focused. He was so focused on, on people coming to know Christ that he said, if it, if it would help them know Christ, I'll give up my salvation so that they'll know Christ. Wow. Am I ready to say that? Is another person dying and going to hell so burdensome to me that I would give up my salvation for that other person? Once we realize that we're saved for God, we are saved for him, for his purpose, we are designed by him, we're created by him, we're created for him, we're saved for him to do his work by his power flowing through us. And that's what Paul understood and I really believe that when he's talking here about this weakness, I believe that he's pleading with God to take it away from him because he believes it's something that's keeping his message, the message of Christ, from being understood. He believes there's something in himself that's causing him to be disqualified for ministry. And so he's pleading with God to take it away from me. Take this away from me so that I can somehow be a better ambassador for you. Please take this away from me. Please. Three times it says he pleaded. It reminds us of the, of the three times that Christ pleaded for the cup to be taken away. Doesn't necessarily mean that he only asked three times, but it means that there's an intentionality to please take this away. But the answer is unexpected. God says... My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. And my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace that's sufficient. You see, we each need a Savior. We each need a Savior. And many times when we think about that, we think about the Savior that saves us and secures our salvation and moves us into a right standing with God. And then we have eternity secured for us. And that's true. We do need to be saved from our sin. We do need to 
to acknowledge to Jesus Christ and to God that we are sinners and that the things that we do have incurred the wrath of God and that we need that wrath of God taken away from us and that the only way that that can happen is through the blood of Jesus Christ and we we ask him to come and be our savior and we turn from our sin and we move into a new relationship and we take our old, cruddy, selfless, selfish, stink life and we trade it in for the life, a new birth, a new creation. And we move into a new standing with God. And we need a Savior. But I still need a Savior today. I need a Savior every minute of the day. Because I'm living in a fallen world where sin is buffeting me, where thorns are overtaking me, and they're overtaking you. And the only thing that can save us from that is the power of Christ in our lives. That's grace. That's grace flooding over you. That's grace washing over you. That is grace lavishing on you. And his grace is sufficient. If the thorn cannot be taken away, his grace is sufficient. So that his power can be made perfect in weakness. You see, my weakness plus the power of Christ equals perfect weakness, or I'm sorry, ooh, we got to redo that. Okay. My weakness plus the power of Christ equals perfect power. My weakness plus Christ's power equals perfect power. So what I need to bring to the equation is my weakness. I got that. Amen. You didn't need to agree that readily, but okay. Okay. <laughs> Right? I can bring my weakness. Oh, that becomes very, very relieving, doesn't it? Because how many times do we try to cover up our weaknesses? See, when Paul says something like, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me, see, that's, that's countercultural for us. That, that, that doesn't quite add up because... Wait, no, I have to hide my weaknesses so that people don't take advantage of me. I have to hide my weaknesses because that's where people will hurt me. I need to hide my weaknesses. I need to appear, I've got to look good. Right? Has that happened to you? And so those things in us that, man, do I struggle? Oh, yeah. I've got a lot of weaknesses. But as I, as I hold those open before you, as I become transparent with those in front of the world, then it allows you to see that Christ's power matched with my weakness reveal his power. Because if I've got anything worth having, it's Jesus. What I had before Jesus is not anything you want. Tony Evans says, God can't fix it on earth and he doesn't want it in heaven, your old nature. He's going to give you a new, a new flesh up there. You see, I've got nothing to bring to this except my weakness that reveals God's strength. Boy, as I've considered that this week and I've considered in my life, what are the little things that I have that I, I think I've gained victory over that have caused me to move towards feeling conceited or pride or those areas that I think I'm, I'm doing okay there? 
What are those areas for us? And how does that keep God from being revealed? The answer is not necessarily relief from the thorn. And we've all experienced that. And we may all be experiencing it in our lives right now. Each one of us has a thorn, and and some of those thorns are not going to experience relief. My mom was here in the first service, Shirley. Next month, it'll be 13 years that she called me and told me she had cancer. Praise the Lord for what he's done. Amen. It's the same for you, isn't it? Yes, sir. Have you pleaded for that thorn to be removed? Well, I accepted it. Accepted it. And just like my mom, Shirley, you have displayed the power of Christ as it torments you. It's constantly there, and your kids, too. And see, that's the reality of it. These things come in our lives, and they torment us. And there's nothing wrong with pleading for these things to be taken away. Oh, if, if, God can, if anyone can take it away, God can take it away. You see, each one of us has these things. We're praying for Caleb Bond. We continue to pray for Rachel. Robin, Robin lost her sister this week. Each one of us have thorns that torment us. What will we do with those? Sometimes when those things come in our lives, if we try to handle those apart from Christ, we're going to respond to that pain in one of two ways, I believe. We're either going to recluse ourselves, we're going to shut ourselves into a dark corner somewhere and and hide ourselves in, in depression or something, or else we're going to try to alleviate our pain by spreading it out onto as many people as possible. And if we can make other people hurt worse than us, then maybe we'll feel better. Whew. Have you ever experienced that? See, God's design, the other choice, is that we take our pain and we take that torment and we take it to Jesus and we say, please take it away, please take it away. And he either says yes or he says, I will give you the grace that you need in my power to withstand it. And so when, when I end up in a place of suffering, when I end up in a place of torment, okay, then I go to somebody and I say, oh, Perry, this is more than I can take. And Perry says, oh, that's okay, I'll carry it for you. He's got nothing either. But he says, let me help you carry that to Jesus. And the two of us carry each other's burden, Galatians 6, and we take that burden to Jesus together. See, that's what the one another is. That's the sharing of that torment. When it becomes too much for us to handle alone, we find another believer who will help us take that torment to Jesus. And we experience the grace and the power of Christ in that area. Paul goes on to say, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. Can I say that? Uh, The NIV does us a little bit of an injustice here. 
as it translates this because it's, it, almost, it almost says that we delight in those things. And that, that becomes one of these things where we can try to get ourselves into a martyr syndrome where we, we seek things to come into our lives that will cause suffering so that we can be happy about that. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is that he delights in showing Christ through those things. That's what he delights in. All right? He's not saying he delights in being beaten 40 lashes minus one. No, no, no. He delights that he's able to show Christ. I don't know if you've started reading the radical book yet. But in the account in there where where they're torturing that one man, and I won't use it because it's kind of graphic and there's some young ears in the room, and the man is saying, praise God, take off this old flesh so that I can put on the new. Come on. Am I able to show Christ's power so much through me in my weaknesses that I can delight that he is seen. That's important for us. It's very important for us. We are the keepers of the hope of the world, right? We hold the hope of the world. And this is one way, pretty big way, that the world sees that as I reveal Christ in me. So, in what ways do I celebrate the power of Christ revealed in my weaknesses? I'm here for God. I am here for God. And so, can I boast in my weaknesses? I pray I can. I pray that in my weaknesses, you see Christ's power making up the difference and becoming perfect power, his power. And I hope you see him receiving the glory for that. It's what I long to have happen in my life so that more people can know the Jesus who changed me and is changing me. How can celebrating keep me from objecting? How can celebrating keep me from objecting? The big question, perspective. I'm here for God. So, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that the answer to our weakness is the power of Christ. I thank you for Paul's example here, Lord, that is so clear that you do have all the power. You can take away the thorn. There's not a thorn we're experiencing that you cannot take away. But Lord, if there's a reason for us to be bearing the thorn, if there's a reason for us to be experiencing the torment, let that reason be that we can reveal your power in our inability to handle it. Praise you for the truth of that, Lord. And I pray that it would infect each one of us for your glory. And in your name we pray. Amen.